Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Loftus Road, the home of Queen's Park Rangers Football Club in London, the setting tonight for the biggest boxing occasion in this country since Henry Cooper fought Muhammad Ali nearly 20 years ago for the world heavyweight crowd. Very much a home crowd and it was great because 12,000 people came from Ireland north and south. 26,000 people there that night. This is absolutely astonishing. The whole place rocking and reeling with sound. Here we go, here we go. We had to cut through the actual seats and the policemen all got their hats knocked off. It was bonkers. He hasn't found the range. Yes, he did. He's got him with a right. Oh, the champion's over in the seventh. I had to make him fight at a pace that would exhaust him and I would just be relentless and stay on him. Well, Spence, before we hear from the clone is Cyclone, the one and only Barry McGuigan, uh, what fight are we going to be talking about today and how you sum him up as a fighter, mate? Well, Russ, we're going back to June 8th, 1985. Barry McGuigan challenging for the world title against Eusebio Pedroza. Eusebio Pedroza was a formidable champion. He's making his 19th world title defence. He'd been champion for seven years. This was a massive step up for Barry McGuigan, who was British and European champion, was on a great roll himself. But yeah, this was a huge fight, Russ. One thing's for sure, Spence, it will be a night that Barry will never forget. I'm delighted to say that the clone is Cyclone is with us. Barry McGuigan, welcome to the fight of my life. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Russ, and uh, great, great to have Spencer uh, as well along because if anybody knows his stuff, he knows his stuff. The Pedroza fight, of course, the mm-hmm. fight that you've chosen on yep. Fight of My Life and so important for so many reasons and it was a heck of a fight, a 15-rounder, which these days, of course, just don't happen. Do you remember where you were when you found out this fight was confirmed and, and how did the fight come about itself? Well, yes, I do vividly remember where I was because um, I was the European champion. I wanted to enter the, the world title fight as European champion and I had to make my mandatory defence uh, against a, 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 let's be polite, a, a reasonably uh, easy opponent from France called Farid Galouz. And that was on, and it's an interesting night because it was on sports night, it was on a Tuesday night. Ireland were playing England in Wembley Arena and we were in Wembley Pool in the little small arena there. As I say, it was a Tuesday night and because it was about five minutes or ten minutes between the end of the game, the friendly game between Ireland and England, and then all the Irish guys who'd bought the tickets had to run from there to get to the fight, knowing that the main event was going to be straight on after the actual fight. And and San Diego del Rio, who was uh, Eusebio's 
Pedroza's manager came in with Pedroza to actually start negotiations on that day. But the guys broke off because they weren't getting anywhere and we understood that it wasn't going to happen. He didn't show up at the fight and so we were all bitterly disappointed. I didn't know that as I walked to the ring they kept that from me. But I was looking around to see could I see him, which I never did. I used to always just focus on the ring, get to the corner, get in there, not look at any family members or anybody in the crowd, just focus on your opponent, etc. But I did have a quick sneak around to see could I see him and I couldn't see him and I thought, well, maybe he's just waiting until the fight starts or whatever. Ever. And so I knocked him out in a couple of rounds. Most of the guys, the Irish fans that had bought tickets to the fight and the game didn't get to their seats in time. And I think Mickey Duff and Barney Eastwood went back into negotiations in the middle of the night with San Diego del Rio. They agreed terms at like five or six o'clock in the morning. And when I woke up, the fight had been confirmed. And then I had literally 10 weeks to get ready for the world title fight. Barry, you were two huge names coming together. Could you tell the magnitude of the fight at the time? Well, I mean, he was the champion for over seven years. Um, he'd made 18 successful defences. This was to be his 19th. And I, I, I knew it was going to be a big fight. I never anticipated us getting 19 and a half million people on, on the BBC. And that's not counting uh, the people who could get BBC all down the east coast of Ireland but didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, there was another couple of million on, on top of that. So but in any case, I had no idea that it was going to be those sort of figures, but it was. Um, I knew it was a great fight. He, you know, he was a great champion and I knew I was going to have to chase him and put the pressure on him, but he was brilliant at going back and he was very con- big for the weight, five, nine and a half and, you know, square, big square shoulders, didn't look skinny like he was a very powerfully built guy. So I, I, I knew... Spencer, I had my hands full, and mm. and I knew that it was going to be very difficult. He'd he'd beaten Rocky Lockridge twice. He'd beaten Bernard Taylor. He'd he'd beaten Patrick Ford. He'd knocked him out, and he'd beaten all the guys that Sanchez had beaten. And and so he was really the lineal champion. He was the guy that held the title for so long. Mm. So it was a it was a great fight for me. It was simply get ready, get into shape, and it was on a bit of a roll because I'd beaten Laporte. I'd proved to CBS Television, who'd come over to cover my fights, and the, uh, you know they were just flabbergasted by the being able to come into Belfast, which was sort of war war torn, and everything was happening and explosions and people dying every day, and yet there was this guy who was sort of fighting, if you like, for peace, and you know he was trying to get people to come together. They wanted to see me tested, and they suggested that I that you know that I fight Juan Laporte, who just lost the featherweight title to. Uh, Mario Miranda and um, that had happened that fight had happened in February 85 and as I said I had to make this defence in order to enter into the championship fight as the European champion I had to make this defence against this rather hapless French guy but it was you know it was a big occasion and it was building all the time Pedroza was a living legend Barry you know seven years a champion making his 19th defence does that affect your mindset going into a fight of this sort of magnitude? I mean, I, for, for me, I, I, I sort of had a look. It's the first time I've ever done it. I, before coming in here, I looked at you know how many fights I had. I was four years as a pro, just four years, just over four, four years as a professional, and I had 27 uh, pro fights. But I'd done it the traditional way, um, Spencer and Ross. I had... 
I'd done, you know, the British title, the European title, and uh, I fought a guy called Charm Chatouli, who was the Commonwealth champion and lost it to the great Azuma Nelson. So I built my way up slowly. Nowadays, uh, you know, a lot of fighters get to world titles and are taking chances and much riskier fights, much quicker. But I'd done it the old, old-fashioned, traditional way. So four years as a pro, and um, I felt I was ready. And I know he had fought all over the world. He'd fought in Japan, he'd fought in America, he'd fought everywhere. And he wasn't intimidated uh, about coming to London, but he would not come to Belfast. And that was a wise thing because, uh, you know, it was very, you know, really noisy in Belfast. We sparred outside a couple of times uh, the back of Barney Eastwood's house. He set up a, a ring. Bearing in mind, I came straight off the, the European title fight against Farid Galouz, where it sort of was... It was a pointless exercise. I'd knocked him out in the second round, so I had loads of energy. I took a week off, and then I went straight back into camp, you know. You, without a doubt, Barry, knew the challenge that you were facing with Pedroza, an an absolutely fantastic champion. What was the mood from your memory in your training camp amongst those people who were so close to you as a professional boxer preparing you for what was a, a fantastic opportunity for you, this fight, in front of it, essentially a home crowd. Yeah, well, absolutely. It was, it was definitely very much a home crowd. And it was great because 12,000 people came from Ireland, North and South. There was 26,000 people there that night. The preparation was was long and hard and detailed. We, we uh, I had two guys in my gym, uh, it was Pepe Moore, and he was a light welterweight, and David Irvine, who was a light welterweight, welterweight. So we had done the, the early part of sparring for that. And then we had... Two Panamanian guys that came in, a guy called Ezekiel Mosquera, who was the the lightweight champion of Panama, and a guy called Jose Marmaleo, who was the uh, South American champion and fought Antonio Esparagosa for the world title. And uh, he was a very good fighter. And so they, they were there, and we had another guy from Gary, Indiana, called Dwight Pratchett. He was a super featherweight. I'd sparred 15 rounds outside, uh, and I'd sparred 15 rounds inside in the gym in Casa Street uh, but we'd done a 15 rounder outside just to get accustomed to fighting outside and I felt great and it I felt you know n- not nearly as tired fighting outside uh, funnily enough as I felt you know when you're in a, a warm gym it just saps your energy as Spencer will know but I'd done two 15 rounders and I f- was flying I felt great I could have done another four or five rounds and I knew I had a chance, but I knew it was going to be very difficult because this guy was really good at fighting on the inside. Although he was tall and rangy, uh, and he was great at long range with a, with a really sneaky jab, he threw loads of bolo punches and ripped in uppercuts and could hit the body very well. and knew how to hit the, the body and was very good at the dirty tactics. He, when he fought Juan Laporte, he fouled him 110 times. That's the truth about sort of eight months before our fight. And I'd fought Laporte in February as well. So, and he said to me afterwards, you know, this guy's dirty on the inside. He's really good and he'll rip it up and he'll hit you with his elbow and he'll hit you with his head and he'll grab you. So I was conscious of that. And so that's why we got in these two Panamanian guys who fought very similar to him and had a, a, a sort of similar technique. Barry, did you follow a certain diet or did you make the weight easily? Well, I, I, I didn't make the weight easy. Uh, I was big. I walked around at 10.4 and I boiled down to nine stone. And here's the thing, and, and, and the difference then was that 
you only realistically had five or six hours of eating before the fight. You know, you weighed in, for example, we weighed in at the Odeon in Leicester Square and I'll never forget it. And we, we turned up and there was 3,000 Irishmen in the, <laughs> in the Odeon and we couldn't get in. And we thought if we get in the front, we'll never get to the stage, right, which is at the back. So we had to walkie-talkie some guys and they ran up and got us and ran us round the back and there was every Tom Dick and, and it was like Christ I leave me alone let me get back Cause I, and of course you're dry as a bone you want to get on the scales so they took us round the back and, and we got to the scales and Pedroza had been fed up waiting and he was tight on the weight and he was a big guy so he rather than the challenger getting on the scales first he got on the scales he was so pissed off with us so he got on the scales first uh, we didn't get a chance to get there uh, Paddy Burns was there but we uh, Barney and I were still running towards the stage front and he got on the scales and the scales didn't settle and Ray Clark was there and he sort of he raised his eyebrows but the WBA official said that's enough you get fine I'm happy with that and we came in Barney went ballistic and said you know I didn't see him on the scales I want to see him back on and he wouldn't get back on the scales and, and, and that was a and you might have seen there was a big uproar in front of the crowd and Barney got on the mic and says we've lost this battle but we're going to win the war this stadium is absolutely blasting with sound from 25,000 throats I don't think there's ever been any night like it in the history of British boxing from the people on the pitch and the people in the stands under this velvety sky on a cold, cold night but my word, this atmosphere is hot. You're listening to Fight of My Life here on TalkSport. Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver delighted to say that Barry McGuigan, world champion, is with us. And uh, we're looking at one specific fight and what a fight it was against Eusebio Pedroza, the Panamanian undisputed champion of the world at featherweight. And so, Barry, we come to the morning of the 8th of June, 1985. And uh, you wake up on the day of the fight. How are you feeling? And is it that usual fight day feeling, or was it a little bit different? On the morning of the fight itself, you know, as 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 um, Spencer will tell you, you, the most important thing you're thinking about is I want to get off those scales and I get something to drink because <laughs> you're tight on the weight, and that's the most important thing. So I remember waking up, and it was it wasn't any different really than than all the other fights. The only difference was that we were. We weren't in Belfast. We were, we were in London. It was a Crest Hotel just off the Edgware Road, and funnily enough, we'd bumped into Pedroza running in uh, Hyde Park earlier in the week, and he had about twenty guys round him, and I was running with my friend Sean McGivern, and it, he was doing honestly. It was like a fast walk, and and he had a big coat on him, so I knew he was on. He was struggling to make weight, whereas I had all my plastic gear on as well and underneath my tracksuit. And we were running around, so we sort of acknowledged each other and ran on. But the morning of the fight, we were just getting to the, to as I say, the uh, the Odeon in Leicester Square. Um, we wanted it to be an atmospheric weigh-in, and and uh, so the border control were there. And of course, as as you mentioned earlier, he got on, and 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 the the thing wavered at the top. And he, I don't think for one minute that he was over the weight. I knew he was on the weight, but he was tight on the weight. We finished, and I had Sean. Sean McGivern would always bring my what I would have I'd have like a soup of of mint steak and get that down me and then we would head off back home to to or back to our our um our hotel and it was 
nerve-wracking because I, I don't think I'd ever seen as many people at the weigh-in as I'd seen that day. And we went and made our way back to the hotel and, and just tried to do and do what I did for all my fights, just lay down, couldn't sleep, uh, turned over and... and uh, Relaxed and talked to my family and and uh, and McGivern, who was was my close mate, and we went in and out of the hotel and went for a walk and then we found a a chapel. So I used to like to go to a chapel on the day of a fight, and we found one just round the back and uh, said a few prayers back to the hotel. Then Sean reminded me the other night that he got me a Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my last meal, believe it or not, at about six o'clock, and and I I, uh, I used to drink, you know, Lucas Aid, thinking that that was the the best thing I could take. But and that was the sort of the the information you got back in nineteen eighty five. Uh, I felt in great shape. I, I I probably put on five, four, five, maybe possibly six pounds. Um. So I don't know what I was. I never weighed myself entering the ring, but I, I probably was about nine stone five, nine stone six. In any case, uh, we then, I think about quarter to eight, we made our way over to uh, Loftus Road. So I got into the van, which had which had Team McGuigan on the side of it, and, you know, come on, Barry. <laughs> as soon as we got to uh, Shepherd's Bush, we just crawled the whole way in because people slap on the side of the van and, it was a huge... We knew at that stage it was going to be really, really atmospheric, you know. So, Barry, you, you arrive at the venue and you get into the dressing room. Barry, tell us what the typical Barry McGuigan dressing room was like. What was going through your head at that time? Well, we, we were at the home dressing room and, and we had sort of it... Sort of, we had it kind of subdivided so that we were in one of the little rooms off to the side and then the other guys, David Irvine, Davy McCauley, Gary Pepe Moore were on the bill as well. And uh, Harry Cobb, who's a Dublin guy, was on. You know, they they were in another part of of the home dressing room, but but we were in sort of the the main part. And I, I like to see the guys, but you know, I I didn't want. You know, and and as you will see as well, and and will understand as well, particularly Spencer, that you don't want guys coming in defeated and cut or badly cut and, and bleeding, and you see them in a in a bad state. So we had this little, as I say, subdivided room off to the right that we sort of kept only ourselves in there. And and I was in the dressing room, walking around, just doing my usual thing, taping my hands. At that at that stage, you know, we didn't go in and watch them, but they came in to watch us, and he made me. Uh, Wrapped my hands twice, uh, um, Santiago del Rio. So he knew what he was doing. So uh, just trying to wind us up. And I remember getting annoyed at one stage and saying, what's wrong with that? And he was going, mm, yeah. And once he knew that I was rattled, he said, yeah, that's okay, okay. And he and he left. So we were then sort of waiting for for the call from the TV and all the rest. And we could hear the, above us, we could hear the sort of boom, 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 boom of the, of the people stamping their feet. And then we could hear the chants... You could hear all that. You could feel all that. You 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 were worried about keeping getting your tactics right and and just getting uh, you know we'd planned so much about pressure and just walking walking them down, but cutting the ring off and and he wanted the biggest ring that we could get and I think it was a twenty foot square ring inside the ropes, which is probably as big as you could get in those days. In any case, what had happened was we had. Uh, CBS that had covered my fights up until that fight but Barney had done a deal with ABC 
and they really had never covered our fights before so they had no idea and to an extent we didn't really know what it was going to be like in an open sort of football pitch so and it was shortly after the Heysel disaster and, and the police were very concerned. There was a high number of policemen there and security and, and so on. And the ABC wanted us to come out of the home uh, dressing room, walk 40 feet up on the left-hand side of the pitch and then go diagonally towards my corner. And we said, that's not going to work. And they said, no, 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 it will work. We've got enough security guys and everything else and, uh, you know, it'll be fine and, and you'll... And then they, what had happened, you could walk left along the side of the pitch and then you had this metal, you know, the metal cages that they have or metal barriers that would secure your walk straight to the ring. But, of course, as soon as we came out of the dressing room, the crowd just crowded in around us and we couldn't move. One of the journalists who covered this fight, who described the fans were like soldier ants coming yeah. from all directions <laughs> into, into Loftus Road. And you were about to enter them because obviously you're in your dressing room, you're as ready to go as you can be. Yeah. And the Rocky theme starts to play and you start making your ring walk. Pedroza yeah. had got to the ring pretty quickly. Yeah. Yours, do you know, can you remember how many minutes it took? It took 12 minutes. There'll never be a bigger reception for Barry McGuigan than this. And when you look at the pictures, Barry, you can't see you. Yeah. You can see one TV camera and just a sea of people. That's right. And, 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 and so it was a disaster. But ABC were to blame for that because they decided they wanted me to have this big sort of big entrance. And, and we said, it's not going to work. We had to cut through the actual seats and the policemen all got their hats knocked off. It was, it was crazy. It was, it was bonkers. It's well not impossible for them to push their way through this huge throng. People blocking the aisles and the challenger can't quite get to the ring. Pedroza was almost in as quickly as me and you could hear they had some Spanish music playing and he got into the ring and I, I mean, I, I had just got in and suddenly he was there. So uh, they got straight to the ring and, and it, was, it was no issue. But it, it was a bit of a pandemonium, the whole thing of, of us getting there. But anyway, we got, we got to the side of the ring. I was fine about it. I just thought it was madder than it had ever been before. It's just crazy. I get a quick swig of water at the side of the ring, get my gum sheet, put it in, get into the ring and I have my gown on still. And I'm sure that what I used to do as a, as, a, as, a, uh, as a fighter was I used to dance around the ring and feel what it's like on my feet, squat up and down, uh, just to feel that the canvas, to actually know what it's going to be like. So I was doing plenty of that, and then he got in, and then the national anthems, the Panamanian national anthem, then they played the Queen, and then our national anthem, of course, because of um, the piece in Northern Ireland was Danny Boy, and my dad sang it. And we, yeah. we, we and your up. dad, Barry, sorry yeah. to interrupt, your yeah. dad, for the yeah. benefit of people listening, yeah. he'd represented Ireland at Eurovision, so yes. he had a good set of tubes. Oh, my, my dad was a re- tremendous singer, fabulous singer, and he was a self-taught musician. He played the saxophone, the bass guitar, the concert flute. Uh, he was a very talented man, but it, the, it, his greatest asset was his voice. He had a, an amazing voice. And... Uh, he sang Danny Boy and uh, we thought you know we could play it uh, instrumentally but it wouldn't be the same as somebody standing up front and singing it so dad was chosen for that Phil Coulter the London Derry man had a, an amazing track record of, of Irish songs and he done the rendition and they, they got into the arena early in the day sang the song and they, they turned it on 
uh, and it was like it's typical sort of uh, back in 1985 and of course just turned on the music and he sang it perfectly and he done two versions uh, two verses and a, and a chorus and that was it of course 27,000 or 26,000 people screaming their heads off he couldn't hear the music <laughs> this is the truth so my dad's uh, singing Danny Boy and he's half a beat behind the actual music and trying to listen but can't hear a goddamn thing done a really good job under the circumstances but I remember because it was such a sentimental song particularly for the north of Ireland it's from it's called the Derriere uh, and it's uh, you know it, it's a great sentimental song so I never listened to it for that reason because I've gone out to face the world champion I had to be in the best shape of my life I had to be really focused and so I didn't I used to hum a little tune or say a little prayer to myself to, to knock out the song and I couldn't hear the song or the words or the sentiment and I looked down into the crowd and I would pick a spot and just not focus on it so my brother Dermot slaps he bangs a and I, and I what what he said he's staring at you so <laughs> he was giving me the death stare Pedroza. so that I just give him the death stare back uh, so that that it helped us get through the song really and, and everybody sang it with him and it, it was amazing you know, the noise was incredible and, and of course it was very emotional and um, we get to the end of the song uh, which, which I'm sort of pleased about and he's still giving me the death stare and in jumps this little leprechaun guy he starts throwing green did dust did you know about it? no I, I hadn't I, God be good to Barney Eastwood he, he died last or in March so I, uh, he came up with the idea he'd seen it in America I think Sean O'Grady had done it uh, the former lightweight champion but anyway I didn't I saw him because he had this fluorescent green on him and shiny and he passed me once or twice and uh, he started he threw the green dust and started doing cartwheels and uh, shadow boxing and the crowd loved it and, and, and he was about to get out and Barney said no no do it again so mm. he went, he went but, round again it was very funny so the, so the crowd were chanting here we go here we go and yeah. we've got the leprechaun jumping around yeah. doing cartwheels shadow boxing <laughs> and the crowd I mean as you said Barry were going insane this is absolutely astonishing the whole place rocking and reeling with sound here we go, here we go. Rings up from almost every throat in the place. Did that put any pressure on you? Remember, you were only British European champion going in for the first time having your first world title shot. Did you feel any pressure with that with that crowd that was just crazy? Well, I, 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 the, the funny thing was, yes, I did feel pressure, a lot of pressure. But, like, you know, you'll understand this, Spencer, yourself, because you get to a British title fight, you then if you manage to get to a European title fight and the crowd get bigger and the audience gets more intense and the pressure gets gets greater. But it's it's part of the whole thing that you become accustomed to. You, so you learn to cope with it. And, the, you know, the, the funny thing is, even though I went out there and, and, and there was 26,000 people there and the noise was intense, it didn't feel like it enveloped you the way it did in the King's Hall. In the King's Hall, it just felt it would hit the ceiling and it would come back down and wash over the top of you. And it was like deafening. So although it was, it was twice, three times the number of people, it didn't seem as noisy, put it that way. So, of course, the occasion, and that's the thing, you know, thinking, whoa, this guy's, you know... You, you 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 do stops and checks the whole way through your life as a, as a fighter. You think, am I good enough? 
and you build up and you spar with better guys and you develop and you think, yeah, maybe I am. And then one day you'll have a bad spar and you think, hold on a second, I'm out of my league here. You know, you, that's what, that's just what human nature is. That's what you do to yourself. Uh, you beat yourself up. But I knew that I had the capacity, I had the strength to give him a, a, a real run for his money. I don't think anybody had made him fight at the pace that I was going to make him fight at. That was my tactics anyway. But I had to get past his left jab. So I knew even before that first bell rang, this is going to be the hardest fight of my life. So he goes back to his corner, bell rings and off we go. Coming up on Fights of My Life on Talk Sport. I knew that in this fight, I had to make him fight at a pace that would exhaust him, that his technical ability would disappear so that I would put on so much pressure that he would lose at equilibrium and I would just be relentless. 
Barry, you know, both of you jabbing and moving well. Mm-hmm. Did you realise, though, straight away that this, this fight was not going to be a walk in the park? Well, I, I knew that from the beginning, Russ, and, and, and I knew that the only way I was going to win this fight, I could never have stood off him. I, I had to put him under pressure, and I'd, I'd watched him fight before, and I'd watched him fight Jose Caba, I watched him fight Laporte, I watched him fight so many of the other guys that he'd beaten, you know, 18 defences, this was to be his 19th, and funnily enough, Larry Holmes had sent us a message and they were both on the same number of defences, he says, hey, hey you got to beat this guy, he says, he can't beat my record, so uh, he, he was wishing me the best of luck, but in any case, I knew that the only way that I was going to beat him, I, he was far superior to me technically, so it was pressure and pace. And the bell went and I ran straight at him. But I eat loads of jabs and his jab was great. And his he was bigger than I thought he was going to be. It was, he was, I, you know, we had taken sparring partners that were similar size, but he just seemed to be tall and he had a long reach too. He had very good middle distance power. And he, at close range, he was a master. He could whip in uppercuts, turn his weight to the left-hand side, hit you with long hooks round the side and up the middle. But in the early rounds, he knew that the way to do it was to build up the point and outscore me and get ahead. So I knew that from the very first bell, I had to put him under pressure with, you know, educated pressure, but nonetheless on top of him, forcing him back, keeping him on, uh, you know, train jab with him. We always say that to guys now. When a guy's got a good jab, try and take it away. Jab with him and then throw the right hand over the top. Keep your head moving. Don't walk onto right hands or solid left hooks as you're walking in. So uh, uh, intelligent pressure. That was what I was trying to apply. Yeah, you could see it become evident from round one, Barry, that that he had a brilliant jab and that was the reason why he'd been champion for so long. You could see that he had all those little moves. He slipped, he slide, and he made it very difficult for you. The first six rounds, I think the fight was quite even. You was was hustling to get inside, slip the shots and try and break that that barrier down and break that distance down. You eventually done that round seven. Um, Pedroza was pushing you back. He put you on the ropes and then you slip the jab and come over with a beautiful... For right, right hand. hand timing was perfect yeah. that was really the turning point wasn't it that that was there was a number of key elements in that fight and and i i want to take you back i'm going to ref, obviously focus on that seventh round because that really was the turning point that was when i drove a stake into his heart as it were metaphorically speaking but in the sixth round i worked him back to the ropes and he was whipping in uppercuts and he was thinking you know this guy's not as good at close range as he was and i threw a right hand which which he blocked with his with his left, and I threw a left hand up the middle, and he put his elbow across to block the left uh, hook. I was throwing it, trying to throw it to the pit of his stomach, and then I quickly threw a second one round the side, and it wrapped into his uh, into his rib cage. And you know you will know this as a fighter. You're these things they're done at like within sort of fourteen inches. You're right on top of him, and so I went left hook up the middle, put his elbow across, and I went, boom right round the side and I could hear him going oh and I, and you know you're right on, and you can hear the noise from the outside but you're right on top of him so you can hear him breathing and he grunted let a big groan out of him and I knew I'd hurt him and I went back to the corner and, and I and my brother had seen it and he used to bang the canvas he used, and he, nowadays he wouldn't be allowed but he'd bang the canvas to get my attention because the noise was so intense around but I knew when I walked and I bit on my gum shield and I went yes I've really hurt him with that left hook that was at the sixth round then the seventh came out and I'm trying to set him up for the right hand and he was obviously conscious of my, my left hook to the body and to the head, but 
I kept throwing, we used to call it the Smithborough Special because that was my old amateur boxing club. And we'd throw it to the body, throw right hand to the body, then throw it again and he would tuck his elbow in. And halfway through the punch, I'm, I'm starting to punch off to the body and then turn it to the head. And, you know, halfway through it. And that's exactly the shot that worked on him. So I hit him right hand to the body and deliberately threw another one. He blocked it again and started off a third one. And then halfway through the movement, I turned it to the head. Bang. Hit him on the side of the head. Didn't hit him on the chin, but I hit him up around the cheekbone and it dropped him. McGuigan's work has not been so effective in this round. He hasn't found the range. Yes, he did. He's got him with the right. Oh, the champion's over in the seventh. He found him with the right. And then all hell broke loose. I ran to the corner. I looked down at, at, at my own corner. You know the way you're told to, you know, always look to your corner for instructions. So I, I knew I'd hit him hard, but I didn't think I'd hit him hard enough. So I looked down to the corner and they said, you know, try, you try another right hand. So I walked in and I, I tried a big, a stupid one, really. What I'd done is I stepped across and so he didn't know what I was going to do. So I stepped to my left, stepped to my right and then threw a big sweeping right hook and he just pulled his chin back and it sailed past his chin and he hit me with a left hook and an uppercut and I went, oh, okay, he's not gone now. So I, I knew he wasn't that badly hurt. So uh, he, he was just sending me a message but he pulled back and I missed him like by a mile. So I knew he wasn't that badly hurt, Spencer. And Ross. Yeah, he went down, he, he looked unsteady and then there was a, you had about 30 seconds, Barry, I think it yeah, was, that yeah, he was piling the on the pressure yeah. and the noise in the, in yeah. the, in, in the ground was yeah. incredible. He showed the sign of a great champion and what a great champion he was yeah. when he come out after that seventh round, yeah. he comes out, he has a good eighth round, yeah. you know you're in a real fight. Yeah. That ninth round, Barry, was again a, a massive thing. He was trying to pressure, he was starting the That's round right. quite well, right. he gets you on the rope, yeah. your back's against the ropes, yeah. you land a big right hook now this time he was hurt yeah he was he was very badly hurt and 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 well i thought he was badly hurt but uh, what what actually happened is right he decided in the eighth round you know this guy can only fight one way can only come forward and it's pretty much correct <laughs> so he decided he'd back me up and you're you're absolutely right he's pulling pushed me back to the to the right in the middle of the ring in the ninth round and he's unloading with shots of the, and blocking and unloading and, and, and playing with me but he's right in punching distance and I'm thinking right here that right hand I missed him with after he got up in the seventh round I'm going to try it again so but at this at this stage he's fighting mid-range to close range with me and as I say his best thing was long range but he was very good at close range so he's backing me up and he's throwing up a cuts and left hooks and I say oh, he's right open for that so I missed him with the left hook and I came back with a right hook. Boom. Hit him on the temple. Good right. Come on, and his legs are gone. The champion could be on his way out. His legs just done a funny dance, and I ran after him, and I, I, I missed him with another right hand that would have knocked him into kingdom come. Then I tried another left hook, and another right hand, and the noise, when his legs went, the crowd just, it was just deafening. You couldn't hear anything. And... I'll, I'll tell you, we, he, uh, what happened was he went, the bell rang, but nobody heard the bell. Not the referee, not me. Yeah. You couldn't hear anything. And I'm it banging. It was so loud, wasn't it? It was so loud. It was absolutely. And actually, Pedroza's um, trainer oh, God, he uh, went gets crazy. quite agitated oh, with you, doesn't absolutely. he? Absolutely. He, what, what happens, the, the bell goes and, and the ringer, and nobody hears it. And the bell's come. Nobody's heard the bell, including the referee. The manager of Pedroza's in. Pedroza is on very, very rocky legs as he goes back to the corner. There was so much noise here. 
The whole place was cheering for the gun. I heard the bell, but the two fighters and the referee didn't. And I caught him a left hook and another left hook, and they weren't full-blooded shots but I hit him a left hook but I hit him about three or four punches after the bell because we didn't even hear it because the referee didn't hear it but but you, you simply it was it was so deafening you couldn't hear it and of course the crowd thought I had him and the bell went and of course Santiago Del Rio came in berated the referee berated us screamed and shouted at us and, and he went back to the corner and but he was furious but we, we genuinely couldn't hear anything and and you listen on television and it's loud and clear. But for the fighters in there in the middle of the, that that crazy atmosphere, you can't hear anything. So I just punched until the referee stopped me punching, and and you know I, I, because I couldn't hear anything. So anyway, they they went crazy. And but the funny thing is, he he, he was better in the tenth, uh, and and he came back again. You know, Pedroza showed the signs of. That amazing recovery, oh, didn't he? And incredible. what a great champion he really yeah. was. I mean, it was incredible how he come back from that seventh round, that yeah. ninth round. You knew, Barry, that he was yeah. going to try and hang in there till the end. Right, right to the end. But then in the 13th round, Spence, I, 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 I nailed him again and I caught him. Again, it was a right hand. It wasn't the left hook. He was far too fly for me catching him with the left hook, but the right hand hurt him. And again, his legs went and I hit him again two or three times and he, he sagged back. And I thought, oh, and the, the referee is standing and, and it looks like he's going to jump in. So I look at the referee. What a stupid idiot I was. And he hit me <laughs> with a right hand bang on the chin. So I went, oh, there's nothing wrong, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with him. So I, I, I went back at him again. He was shaking, but he, again, his powers of recovery were, were incredible. And he got back into the fight again. And then I thought, you know, in the fifteenth round, I said I just moved my head and box him a little bit and put on a bit of a bit of fancy stuff right before the end. But and I remember going back to the corner after the fourteenth round, and Paddy Byrne says to me, "You've got three minutes to 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 beat one of the best featherweights in this century." And I said, "Is this the last round?" He says, "Yeah." He says, "It's the last." I went, I did, that's how up I was. How you know, focus I was at lost count of the round. So there you go. And 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 the fifteenth round I just backed him up, tried to catch him right to the final bell. But like the solid, durable, credibly resourceful champion that he was, he hung in there to the end. And, you know, it, it was just amazing when it all when it all finished it was it was incredible. Barry you finished the full 15 rounds, obviously, in a, in a world title fight situation when the pressure is really on. You'd never actually done that before. Uh, where did you find this extra energy from? Well, I, 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 was, I was always very... Uh, stamina. Stamina was my thing. Uh, pace and power and stamina. And I trained ridiculously hard. And so I, I gave myself an advantage. So physically... I was stronger, much stronger than most guys at 126 pounds or nine stone. So I just, I was relentless. And I, I, you know, you play to your powers, don't you? You, you? you take advantage of your of your powers. So my, I knew that in this fight, I had to make him fight at a pace that would exhaust him, that his technical ability would disappear so that I would put on so much pressure that he would lose his equilibrium. He would lose his ability to keep me away from him. And I would just be relentless and stay on him. And that's what I tried to do, but but he kept his he kept his balance. He kept his, you know. Although I forced him back and won, I thought quite convincingly. He was very very tough and very very resourceful and, and incredibly durable. Is he going to go the distance, or can McGregor finish it? 
35,000 people singing McGuigan home to victory. I've never heard such excitement in my life as this crowd is creating him. McGuigan going for the win, he's got him with the right hand again. 20 seconds and then it goes to the referee and the two judges, but there must only be one winner. This is Talk Sport, Fight of My Life. Barry McGuigan, our special guest, Russ Williams here, Spencer Oliver over there, and we're having such a wonderful conversation remembering that great night on the 8th of June 1985 at Loftus Road in West London when you, Barry, became WBA featherweight champion of the world. So the fight is over, the ring is packed post-fight, you're getting dragged from pillar to post yep. by people. Everyone wants, wants their arm around you. You're the man of the moment. And then comes the announcement and confirmation that you're the champion. Forgive me for being slightly rude, but it was probably the shortest announcement <laughs> ever, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the, the MC was a guy called Danny Small from Belfast. And I think his enthusiasm just uh, got the better of him. He didn't read out the scores. He just said, and the winner <laughs> by unanimous decision is Barry McQuicken. This is the result a unanimous decision Barry McGuigan McGuigan is right McGuigan is the champion of the world they've all voted for him and all 25,000 people in the stadium had already voted for him and of course that's all the crowd wanted to hear so they went Bonkers, so he didn't read out the scoring of of the the judges, uh, but it was uh, by quite a wide margin, and then all hell broke loose. And in fact, all hell had broken loose before he announced it because all the media guys said that that the crowd had in, you know behaved impeccably up until that point, and then the bell rang for the fifteenth round before the announcement, before of the, the scores were collated, and the crowd just surged towards the ring and Tom Cryan, God be good to him, former Irish independent uh, reporter said somebody stood on his shoulder and stood on his head wow. <laughs> to get up into the ring. They climbed over the top of these guys so they just they just walked along and jumped up on the chairs and, and it was it was a bit crazy. So they didn't have the security then that they have now of course um, but so they, it took a, a long time to clear the ring and I don't think they ever quite cleared it. Uh, then we done the interview afterwards with Harry Carpenter, and I got emotional because I was thinking about Young Ali, the 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 fight, the fighter that had died from our fight back in 1982, and I I, did, I wasn't able to, I was sort of slobbering, and and uh, Harry was able to articulate what I was saying and and tell it to the the, the audience. Let me say something to you. You've always thanked me for coming to Belfast. Let me thank you now for coming to London and giving us this victory. Oh, thank you very much, Harry. I'm so delighted. I'd like to take this opportunity, uh, you know, to, 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 to say one, one thing. I've been thinking about it all week and I said if I won this world title I would dedicate it to the young lad that, 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 that died when he fought me in 1982 and I said at the start that uh, I would like it to be not just an ordinary fighter that beat him, but the world champion. What was the feeling, Barry, of actually becoming world champion? Do you remember what was going through your head, or, or was it all too much at the time? Well, I mean, to be honest, you you don't you don't actually think about that. You don't th you just think I've won the fight, and yes, I've won the world title. That's great, but it it doesn't resonate with you until you. And I'll I'll tell you when it did resonate. My mother. And my sister Rachel and my auntie Breege were the only ones in the family still there. The rest were over at the fight. And 
you know, I went back to the dressing room. I'll, I'll get this in chronological order, and it was great. And we met all those celebrities. We had a great time, and then we made our way back to our hotel. And I was going to stay to the middle of the week in in London, but I got the news the following morning that my mum's house used to light a holy candle for me. Uh, <laughs> And it helped me win the world title and then burn the bloody house down. So we, by the time uh, we got that news, my I diverted my ideas of going and staying to the cent- middle of the week in London, and we headed home on the Monday. And the, you know, the, you know, you you wake up the next morning, you're world champion, and and the press were in the hotel, and they wanted to take a picture of me and my son and my wife in 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 our dressing ground in in lying in bed and all of that um with the world title belt and and that was that was fantastic uh, and then we came home on the monday and there was 75,000 people in 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 uh, in royal avenue in belfast so it took us you know uh, we drove down the the we drove down Royal Avenue and it was like after it was like scenes you'd seen from the the end of the second world war where just thousands of people were out screaming and shouting hanging out of the windows and it was amazing and we went down to the King's Hall and went out stood out on the balcony and, and sort of addressed the people and with the Lord Mayor and later that day we went down to Clonus and it was you know, Clonus is a small town population 2,000 people it was about 35,000 people there in the town it was crazy and it was that celebration and, and then believe it or not <laughs> I done fifteen rounds on the pads that night in in my dressing room or in my or in my little gym at the back of the house with my brother Dermot to get away from it all, and then on the Thursday of that week, we went to Dublin. It was three hundred and fifty thousand people in in Dublin to see me, and it was at that point that I realised how much that meant to Ireland and 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 in Belfast, of course, and and what I meant to the Irish people, north and south, and. It was such a huge, huge, uh, hugely important part of our struggle to get to the top and to bring the people together to fight uh, with the United Nations flag of peace on our shorts and to not alienate either Catholic or Protestant people and to send a message that we were we were trying to do something good. And I'd like to think we were doing what the you know the Anglo-Irish Agreement had done se- several years later. Um, we, we, we showed them the way to go um, and, you know, we were very proud of that, both myself and Barney Eastwood. It was pandemonium in the ring when your name was announced that you had become world champion. The crowd were going wild, that you managed to get yourself back to that dressing room. When you had time to digest that, that you had actually become world champion, what was the feeling like in the dressing room? What was the atmosphere like in there, you know? Can you talk us through it? Yeah, they were all drinking champagne except me. I don't drink, never drank in my life. So, uh, And I was delighted that they were happy because I was thrilled. And I was thrilled that I'd actually done such a good job in the fight, that I'd stuck to my, my game plan, that I'd exercised the right tactics. And that I think as well that it was such a good fight. It was a competitive fight. And although I won by unanimous decision, it was still, he made it competitive right up to the end. And uh, it, it was just an incredible occasion. And then it, the noise, it was a noise that was just, we came out onto the street and got into the car and just the whole way from 
Loftus Road back to to the Edgware Road was was just deafening. Just hordes of people screaming and shouting, and 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 it just seemed to take forever to get back to the hotel. But we did nonetheless, and I think most people uh, drank into the middle of the night, and I, I got very little sleep myself and my wife and my son. And then the press were there again early in the morning, wanting to take pictures of us with the championship belt. It was oh, it was just amazing. Barry, if you could change anything in your career, what would it be? To be honest with you, Spence, I wouldn't change anything. I had the most incredible time as a fighter. Incredible. It was just, I mean, it was bonkers. It was mad. We were going at 100 miles an hour. But I look back on it with real pride and... um, you know, I'm very proud of what I achieved. Myself and Barney Eastwood, and, and as I said, we had a bit of a rock at the end. And But, you know, at the end of the day, what we achieved together was just truly magnificent. And um, it was unbelievable. You know, I went on that year to win the BBC Sports Personality of the Year, the only non-UK uh, winner of it. So it was it was um, incredible. The whole The whole thing was amazing and, and, and sure I lost some fights but do I regret anything? Absolutely not. I'm very, very proud of my career. It was ephemeral, short but very impactful. Barry, you're a national treasure, devoted father and husband, boxing legend and above all else a world champion and uh, we've talked about the biggest night of your career in June of 1985 at Loftus Road on Fight of My Life. It's been an absolute pleasure, Spencer and myself, and I'm sure the listeners have thoroughly enjoyed listening to your forensic analysis <laughs> of that big night for you. Uh, we wish you the very best for the future. Thank you, thank very, you much. very much for coming in. Enjoyed it. Barry McGuigan there on Fight of My Life. Keep listening to Talk Sport. Plenty more boxing life stories still to come. Until next time, from myself and Spencer, it's goodbye. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.